Good morning. Welcome to Easter, part two. Yeah, I was thinking this morning that the traditional Easter greeting is to say to someone, He is risen. No, you guys know it, good. But I was thinking, you know, for the day, for the Sunday after Easter, and really every day, uh, we could modify that and say, He is still risen. He is still risen indeed, because that's the truth. And that's the hope that we have. And so today we're going to take another look at this topic of great restoration, the great restoration that Jesus came to accomplish in our lives, in our world, through his death and resurrection. I said last time, we often call Jesus our Lord, we often call him our Savior, and rightfully so, but we could also rightfully call him our Restorer, because that is something he came to accomplish. He came and died for us, he rose from the dead for us, he now lives to restore us. It is an amazing thing, and, and we desperately need that. We desperately need his restoring work. I think most people sense that there is something desperately wrong with, with us and with our world, and because we are not what we are meant to be. And when something is not what it is meant to be, because it's been damaged, because it's been uh, messed up in some way, it needs restoration. Uh, last time I showed you some pictures of restoration. This time I've got this little cute silver plate coffee pot. And I don't know if you can see it very well, but this side is not that great because it's gotten all tarnished and messed up. And then somebody restored half of it. So you can get the, you know, the before and after look. And uh, really, this is very minor restoration. The restoration that Jesus aims to accomplish in our lives is much more extensive, much more difficult, and far more costly. It cost Jesus his life on the cross, that excruciating suffering, uh, in order for him to do his work of restoration in us. And it's a process. You know, I'd love it if I could just pray a prayer and instantly restored to exactly what Jesus wants me to be, but that's not how it works. It's a process that he begins as we trust him. And then one day it will be completed in a great event when Jesus returns. And when that happens, for those who trust him, it is going to be amazing. Yeah, I think that's why Paul the Apostle says in Romans 8.18, he says, I consider that our present sufferings, the sufferings we experience because we're broken and our world is broken, our present sufferings, he's not saying they don't hurt, they do, but they are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Well, in John chapter 21, this is where we're going to be today, John 21, if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, that's the fourth book in the New Testament, fourth of the four biographies we have of Jesus, the four Gospels. In John 21, we get some glimpses of this restoring work that Jesus wants to accomplish in our lives. And the events of chapter 21 take place shortly after Jesus has risen from the dead and he has 
initially appeared to his disciples, and then they have gone north from Jerusalem to Galilee, which is where he told them to go, and he would meet with them there. And while they're up there in Galilee, they decide to go fishing, which was their trade before they had begun to follow Jesus. And so they're going fishing, and and there's just something about this that doesn't feel quite right. And we get that feeling because it tells us very specifically that they worked hard all night long fishing and caught nothing until Jesus shows up and they begin following his directions and listening to him, and then they catch so many fish they can't even pull them into the boat. And so there seems to be this intentional lesson we're supposed to learn here that when we're doing our own thing on our own way without regard for the risen Christ, that results in a life of futility where we're just not living out the purpose that God has for our lives. Not that there's anything wrong with fishing, but when we're not living in light of who Jesus is as our risen Lord and Savior and what he means to accomplish in our lives and what he has for us to do, our lives are futile. But when he becomes the one in our lives who calls the shots, when he becomes the one that we listen to, the one who's, we, we get our instructions and our purpose from him, then he begins to transform our lives from futility to fruitfulness. And we're no longer just, you know, killing time. We're no longer just spinning our wheels in life. We're actually uh, beginning to make a difference, the right kind of difference in life as we live in light of him and his purposes. Now today I want to look at the rest of the story because we can see another kind of restoration that Jesus lives to accomplish in our lives. And the reason I think it's important we look at this is because it's possible that you hear this, maybe you heard it last time, maybe you're just hearing it for the first time, but you hear this about Jesus restoring your life from futility and, and changing your life into something that is fruitful and meaningful. And you hear that and it, it sounds appealing. But there's a problem. And the problem is you're not convinced that Jesus will really do that for you. Because there's something holding you back. There's something keeping you from really pursuing the life that Jesus wants you to live, from really going after it, from really just seeking what his meaning, his purpose, living your life as a follower of Jesus. And the thing that's keeping you from doing that is this thing called failure. And whether it's, it's a series of you know, repeated failures in your life, or if it's maybe just a big, gigantic failure in your life, whatever it is, you feel disqualified by it. You, you, you feel disqualified, so you don't really try. You don't really try to live for the Lord. You don't really try to make a difference in this world for Him because you don't think you can. And if you've ever felt like that, or if you feel like that now, then this story is for you. Because this is a story about someone trying to follow Jesus who failed spectacularly, hugely, 
and yet was restored by Jesus to live a life that was more fruitful, more meaningful than he ever could have imagined. See, the Bible tells us that after Jesus was arrested, and that night he was arrested and then went to trial and eventually was crucified, on that night, Peter, a man chosen by Jesus very specifically, man chosen to be his follower, really his key follower among the 12, kind of the leader of the pack in some ways. Jesus called him the rock. Peter, who professed his devotion to Jesus again and again, when push came to shove to save his own skin, publicly lied and said he was not a follower of Jesus, and even worse, said he didn't even know the man, and he did it not once, not twice, but three times within the course of a couple of hours. And later, when he realized what he had done, the Bible says that he went out and he wept bitterly. And you know, there's a place for that. There's a place for weeping bitterly, for crying out, what have I done? There is a place for regret, for feeling unworthy, feeling even useless. But one of the great, important messages of Easter is that place of weeping and regret and feeling useless is a temporary place. We don't have to stay there. In fact, we must not stay there because Jesus died and rose again to restore us from that regret, that weeping, that futility, to restore us to a life of purpose and meaning and fruitfulness. So let's go to John chapter 21, and let's, let's finish the rest of the story. We're going to start in verse 15. And, you know, the disciples have been out fishing. They're not catching anything. Jesus shows up. He says, cast the net on the other side of the boat. They do. They catch so many fish, they can't even get them in the boat. They come to shore, and Jesus serves them breakfast. Now, verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon Peter the failure, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now at some point here, they begin to walk down the shore. And Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. 
This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Apparently, stretching out the hands is a reference there to crucifixion, which is how Peter would die. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. That's apparently John, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So Jesus not only restores us from futility to fruitfulness, he restores us from failure to fruitfulness. He restores us from failure, Jesus does. Now how do we experience that? Well, there are two ingredients here of restoration that I see. And I think these will be present whenever Jesus restores us from failure. Genuine restoration from failure will always include these two things. The first of these is community. Community. In other words, when Jesus restores us from failure, it will be in the context of relationships with others in the body of Christ. And if you think about it, it has to be. Because what we're talking about is being restored from failure to a life of fruitfulness. You know, Jesus tells Peter to shepherd his sheep. To care for his people, to, to feed them the word of God. So, what we're talking about here is being restored from failure to the thing that Jesus means for us to do in this world according to the gifts, according to the abilities he's given us, according to how he wants to use us to accomplish his purposes in this world living on mission for him, serving others in his name. Well, the Bible's very clear that we only do that as a team. And Jesus' team is called the church. His body, his people, his sheep. Bah, here we are. And I say this, I say this repeatedly, you know, periodically. You've heard me say it. I can see you roll your eyes every time I say it, but this is the truth. It's a biblical truth, it's an important truth, and it's one that's hard for us because we in our culture are so individualistic, we are so independent, but this is the truth. We can only live the life Jesus wants us to live in community with others who are also following him. That's how it works. We can't do it. Jesus doesn't restore us from failure to be a bunch of independent lone rangers doing our own thing. He restores us from failure to accomplish his mission in this world, and we do that mission together. And we see that right here. We see that Jesus works at restoring Peter from failure in the presence of his other disciples. When he asks Peter, do you love me more than these? He means, do you love me more than these other guys love me? Which means they're there. They're listening. Now, that may sound like a weird question. Why does Jesus ask him that? Well, because Peter had previously claimed, probably more than once, that he did love Jesus more than the rest of them. In fact, look at Matthew 26, 31. Then Jesus said to them, he's, 
He's now predicting what's going to happen when he's arrested. He says, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Well, Peter's not going to let this slide. He says, what? Doesn't say that, but that's his attitude. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I never will. Yeah, Lord, I can understand why you'd say that about these other guys. Just look at them. Sure, they might fail you, but Lord, I never will. Because I love you more than they do. The other guys had heard this claim. They'd heard him say this. And they knew he had choked. He had utterly failed. So where's he at now? What's he saying now? What's on his heart now? They need to hear from him. They need to hear where his heart's at. Has anything changed? Well, we're going to see what's changed in just a minute. But the point is, if Peter is going to be restored alongside of these guys, then what is in his heart cannot be a secret. They have to know. And so Jesus very graciously asks Peter in front of the others where his heart is at now because they need to know. They're going to be in this together. They're going to need to grow together. They're going to need to struggle together. They're going to need to serve together. They're going to need to strive together. And that's the kind of restoration that Jesus is all about. Restoring us from failure together. To serve him together. The principle is, if restoration is going to be meaningful, if it's going to be fruitful, if it's not just going to be this little private forgiveness between you and Jesus, but if it's going to be meaningful and fruitful and accomplish God's purposes, it has to be shared. There have to be other believers in Jesus who know about our failures and who encourage us and who pray for us and who challenge us. Now, it's not going to be everybody, but it needs to be somebody or somebodies. And I know this goes completely contrary to our cultural values of secrecy and individualism. But do you know what really thrives in secrecy? Sin. Sin thrives in secrecy. And some of you are living very defeated lives because you're caught up in sin and you are desperately trying to keep it a secret. You're hiding because you're so afraid that if someone found out, you would just be humiliated. Maybe so. But it might just be the best thing that ever happened to you. Because to finally admit your failures to others and then to experience them forgiving you and praying for you and encouraging you, that will liberate you like nothing else ever will. Do not suffer in silence with your sin until you get caught. The biblical path to freedom is confession. 
James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, the flip side of this, of course, and this is so important, is that if someone comes and confesses a failure to you, you now have an awesome responsibility. You have the awesome privilege of being used by Jesus to help that person experience his restoring grace. You need to realize what a risk this person has taken by trusting you with their failure. And you know what they need from you? They need the same thing from you that you need, that I need, that we all need all the time. They need the grace and truth of Jesus. Both. Grace and truth. Truth that is expressed graciously and grace that is expressed in truth. Grace and truth. So you pray. Someone just closed the failure to you. You pray. You pray that Jesus will dispense his grace and truth through you. Now, there is so much more that could be said about this, and I'm sure I'm not even beginning to answer all of your questions about this, but here's the thing I hope you walk away with. I hope you walk away with the conviction that genuine, Christ-centered relationships are absolutely essential to experiencing restoration from failure, true restoration, the way Jesus means it to be. We experience his restoration in community, in community. All right, then there's another ingredient for this kind of restoration, and it's the ingredient called humility. Humility. To be restored from failure, it requires humility. And here's, here's now where we see what's changed in Peter's heart. And it needed a change, and it's good to see it. Three times, Jesus asks Peter a very simple question. Do you love me? How would Peter have answered that question before his failure? Well, we really don't have to wonder. We we pretty much know. We've seen it. He would have answered that question with a great deal of self-confidence. What do you mean do I love you, Lord? Of course I love you. Look at me. I will love you no matter what. I will love you I will never fail you. Even if everybody else falls away, I never will. And what happened? I'm not going to take the time to read it, but it's in all four Gospels. It is pretty well known. It's about as well known as anything from the New Testament. What happened to Peter? Under pressure, epic fail. Epic. It just doesn't get any worse than denying to the world that you even know Jesus. So, since he denied three times, Jesus gives him three opportunities now to reaffirm his love. And and here's what's so revealing about this, I think. It's the way that Peter's answer. I think it shows a profound change. A change from self-confidence to Christ-confidence. And that... That's key to humility. A change from self-confidence 
to Christ's confidence. He doesn't say, Lord, I love you. Do you see that? He doesn't say that. Instead, he says, Lord, you know that I love you. He moves the evidence. He changes the emphasis from what he does, from what he is, from what he can do, and he puts the emphasis instead on what Jesus knows. And by asking the question three times, Jesus is helping Peter really clarify where he's putting his confidence. And it's no longer in himself and in his own ability. It's now in Jesus and in what Jesus knows. Lord, you know. (laughs) You know my heart. You know everything, Lord. You know me. You know that I love you. You know what I can do. You know what I can't do. And you know if my love for you is enough or if it isn't, but you know. You know. I think that's huge. That's humility. And that's absolutely essential in order for us to be restored from failure. We have to stop being confident in ourselves and in what we can do for Jesus, and we instead have to place our confidence in Jesus and what he will do in and through us. Switch where your confidence is. See, as long as you are confident of your ability to obey Jesus, as long as you are confident of your ability to accomplish the things he wants you to do, to be the person God wants you to be, you're going to fail. You're going to fail. Peter tells us the lesson that he learned in 1 Peter 5, 6. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humble yourself. Now what does that mean, humble yourself? Well, I want to say what it doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean is to keep putting yourself down, to keep criticizing yourself, to keep condemning yourself. You know what that is? That's actually another form of pride because it's a form of self-preoccupation. Okay, Pride doesn't always look self-confident. Sometimes it does. But sometimes... It looks very self-demeaning, self-condemning, self, but it's self, 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 self. And the problem is, that will also keep you from living the fruitful, meaningful, difference-making life that Jesus wants you to live. You're so full of guilt, you're so full of shame that you aren't using the gifts and the abilities that God has given you because you feel so unworthy. I remember having a conversation with someone about this and talking to someone who, who felt very unworthy because of a past failure in her life. And in this conversation, she said something that I thought was absolutely profound. She'd been telling me about the hard time she'd been having, kind of getting past her failure and, and uh, really feeling forgiven. And so... 
I asked her a question. I said, now, if you had a friend, a believer in Jesus, a friend who failed in some way, and yet could not get past her failure, what would you tell her? And she, without any hesitation, said, I'd tell her to get over herself. Perfect. Absolutely perfect answer. Humility is not only replacing our self-confidence with Christ's confidence, it's getting over ourselves. Getting over ourselves completely. Pride is self-preoccupation. Get over it. Get over it. Of course you're unworthy to serve Jesus. Newsflash. You're unworthy. I'm unworthy. We're all unworthy to serve Jesus. Even on our best days, we're unworthy in ourselves. Yeah, I, I can remember thinking this. I don't even remember what I did. It was some kind of, you know, thing that just, I felt guilty about it. I felt I'd really blown it. You know, it's like a Friday, and I just think, oh, man, I can't preach this Sunday. I'm unworthy. It's like Jesus tapped me on the shoulder and said, Scott, you're always unworthy. (laughs) Even when you think you're doing great, you're unworthy. You only preach my word because that's what I called you to do. And I died to forgive you. And I rose from the dead to empower you. You preach because of me. And that's true for every single one of us. He makes us worthy. So get over yourself. Humility doesn't... Yeah, here's the thing. We think, okay, humility means, you know, thinking less of myself. Oh, I'm so this, I'm so that, I'm just so terrible. No. Humility doesn't come from thinking less of yourself. You know what humility comes from? Thinking of yourself less. That's a big difference. Stop being preoccupied with how worthy or how unworthy you think you are. Become preoccupied with Jesus and how worthy He is. That's what we need to do. And you know what He says to you? Follow me. Follow me. Now, Peter, at this point... (laughs) falls into a trap we often fall into, he begins to compare himself to somebody else. And he looks at John and he says, hey, what about him? What about that guy? And Jesus looks him in the eye and says, what about him? He's not your concern. You follow me. Don't compare yourself to somebody else. Isn't that what we do? Isn't that what we do when we're preoccupied with ourselves? You know, we compare and we feel sorry for ourselves because we compare the Lord's will for that person with the Lord's will for me. And you know, the Lord's will for them looks a lot better than the Lord's will for me. I'm not sure I like this. And Jesus says, would you just get over yourself? Just get over yourself. Just follow me. I died for your eternal joy. I know what I'm doing. And I will lead you there if you will trust me. Do you ever wonder if you can live the life 
God calls for you to live? You think you can ever live your life the way God wants you to? Boy, I do. And here's the thing. The real issue is never what you think of you. The real issue is what Jesus thinks of you. And he thinks of you with gracious, restoring love. My friend, Jesus knows. He knows you. He knows your failures. He knows where you're strong. He knows where you're not. He knows where you have denied him, living at times as if you don't even know him. He knows. And yet, he loves you. And he calls you to follow him. He will restore you if you will receive it. Will you receive it? In community, with humility, Jesus will do his restoring work in you. Let's pray together. I don't know what failures maybe are uppermost in your thinking as you kind of look at your life. And perhaps if you've never yet come to that place of weeping and crying out, Lord, what have I done? There's a place for that. But don't stay there. Jesus doesn't want you to stay there. He has a life he wants you to live. If you have never yet experienced his redeeming, restoring love in your life, you can begin today by just saying, Lord, please do it for me. I choose today to put my trust in you, to stop putting my trust in myself, to stop condemning myself, to stop being preoccupied with myself. Lord, help me. Help me begin. And then share that share that with someone else so that they can know, so they can pray. And if you have known the Lord, but you have been held back by failure, <laughs> as gently and as lovingly as I can say it, it's time to get over yourself. It's time to put yourself in Jesus' hands and follow him. So wherever you're at, will you just take a moment and pray, and, and then I'll pray too. Father, there's not a person in this room who's worthy to follow you in ourselves. <laughs> but I am so thankful for the good news. That Jesus, you make us worthy. You make us worthy to know you, to follow you, to serve you, to represent you in this world, to make its difference for your glory and for the good of people. Lord, will you do that? Will you just help us be a people who are living on mission for you, living the fruitful, meaningful lives you call us to live because of your great work of restoration in us? Lord, we can't wait for the day when that restoring work is complete. And we thank you that you just keep working. 
We give you the praise in your name. Amen.